All right, if you have a Bible or a Red Pew Bible in front of you or a phone, turn to Mark chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 13, where we read this, Mark 2, 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. As he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Father, thank you for your word, and we pray, Holy Spirit, you would reveal to us the things you want us to hear, that it is truly transformative in the people who we are becoming, more in the image and likeness of you, Jesus. And I pray, God, that it doesn't just fall on our ears to increase our knowledge base, nor is it just something to convict us, but God, that it is truly life-changing. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we'll see Jesus add to his team of disciples, and who he added will be quite shocking. We know that the first four selections Jesus made to his team to change the world were fishermen. I don't know if that's who you'd choose, but that's who God chose. And then this next one, whose name is Levi, went on to create this wonderful line of genes. And then we also know him by the name of Matthew. And we're also going to read of Jesus' continued conflict with the religious establishment of his day. So let's look at verses 13 and 14 first. Who went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. What was Jesus teaching them? Now it's summarized in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And we see Jesus time and time again going back to preaching and teaching this. Now, coupled with this is what Jesus did. He delivered people from spiritual oppression. He healed the sick. He touched the unclean. He made them clean. He forgave sins. He raised people from paralysis. He didn't just come to deliver words, nor did he just come to do great things. He did both as his theology shaped his anthropology as well as shaped his sociology. Now, a little bit of background about Levi and his job as a tax collector. Levi was a Jew who sat at this tax booth taxing goods from the domestic market, an excise tax, as well as acting as this customs agent for goods entering Capernaum and leaving Capernaum. 
See, when Herod the Great, his father, died, the Romans divided his kingdom into four parts, three to his sons and one part to his sister. And so what happened here is that Herod Archelaus, one of his sons, became tetrarch or ethnarch of Judea. Herod Antipas became tetrarch of Galilee, Perea, this region that we're talking about here. Herod Philip became tetrarch northeast of the Jordan. And Salome, his sister, was given this district which included these ancient cities of Ashdod, Jabda, and Phasaelus. And so here is Capernaum, and Capernaum is in Herod Antipas's territory right there on the northern western shore of the end of the Sea of Galilee. Right adjacent to this area is his brother's kingdom, Herod Philip's II. And so they are bordering with one another. And Capernaum was the last town before heading east into Philip's kingdom. And it was the first town you'd enter west while you're traveling west into Antipas' kingdom. And whatever goods came in or out of this region, Levi collected taxes for Herod Antipas. Now keep in mind, there was no taxes here before. Because it was all Herod the Greats. So there were no taxes here before. So people... We're kind of feeling the pressure to even pay more taxes. And you're not happy about that most of the time, right? We don't like to pay more taxes. And so it's bad enough that Levi worked as a tax collector for the Romans as they were oppressive to the people there. But in addition to that, Levi exploited his fellow Jewish community. See, the Romans had a certain amount that they wanted to bring in, and any margin above that, well, the tax collector can kind of play with those numbers and pocket some of that for himself. And so if he didn't meet a certain number, he, the tax collector, would actually have to make up the difference. And so Rome was going to get paid either way. So you see how this position, this position of power, could and was abused. Because he was not about to pay anything out of his own pocket. And he was going to make sure that he was going to get his. So Levi became an extension of this Roman Empire oppression, this abuse of power, taking advantage of his own people. And so hopefully that gives you a better picture as to why tax collectors were hated at this time. And we can also see that they were outcasts of their society, much like the leper, even though it wasn't a physical ailment that separated them. The leper in chapter 1 was separated, was deemed unclean by the people and ostracized from society because of his physical illness, but the tax collector was because of his line of work. And while it would be debatable as to whether a leper brought shame to his family, the tax collector surely did. There was so much mistrust with the tax collector that there were some laws, some rules that they weren't allowed to partake in certain things, like giving testimony. Their testimony in court was unacceptable. They were so hated that when they traveled, they had to travel with religious folks and military folks so that they wouldn't get jumped or beaten or killed. So they traveled with Levites and the priests, and they traveled with the military in order not to be in danger themselves. They were considered unclean people. They were not allowed to enter into synagogue to worship with the people. And if a tax collector goes inside of your house, everything in your house is considered unclean, and it would have to be Purified, They'd have to go through these purification rituals in order for your house to be clean again. So in essence, they were never invited in. 
And so they were so despised that any gift from a tax collector was not to be accepted. And so do you see why Levi's and Zacchaeus' invitations to Jesus to eat with them in their home was so scandalous? If he goes into their house, everything's dirty, but Jesus goes in there. We talked about baptism and Jesus partaking in baptism and time and time again. Jesus coming from heaven to earth, entering into our world. Jesus going into the water. Jesus going into a tax collector's house. This is our God. He enters in. Socially, he was just like a leper. The tax collector was not accepted into the spiritual community. He was an outcast from his family, from his friends who were practicing Jews. Now, with this background, we add another layer to this story. We know Capernaum to be a fishing village. Simon, Andrew, James, and John were all fishermen. James and John's father, Zebedee, had this fishing business in Capernaum. Everything a fisherman caught was not for themselves. It's not like business as we run today, where most of it comes to us, and then some of it goes to the government officials for taxes and things like that. Actually, what happened back then was they received a very small portion of what they made. The fishing industry was controlled by Rome. Leases were sold to fishermen to catch fish, and all the distribution of that fish was controlled by Rome. So it wasn't like they caught fresh fish, and then they can have it for themselves, or they caught fresh fish, and they shipped it to Jerusalem because there's no ice, and it's 21 miles away. So most of their fish, when they caught it, was smoked, it was salted, it was preserved some way, it was made into a fish sauce, and then it could be traveled to be exported to be sold. Exported so that there's a revenue stream for Herod Antipas. Now, do you know who was in charge of selling those fish leases? The tax collector. Ooh, the web. Right? It's just... Now, isn't it fascinating that the first four disciples Jesus called were fishermen? And then the next person he calls is a tax collector. What in the world is Jesus thinking? What a way to build trust in a team, Jesus. Like, that's awesome. Like, when we gather to build teams, we don't like, who are the most opposite people? Who hates each other? Let's bring them together. Let's build a team and change the world with them. Like, we don't do that. But he's gathering all five of them who are really under the oppression of Rome. And the four fishermen were essentially slaving away for Herod Antipas in Rome. And Levi was just this extension of Roman occupation who by taking on this role is ostracized by his community. And then what does Jesus offer them? Mark chapter 1 verse 17, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. All this stuff that they were doing was just going to Rome. It was just going to Herod, fishing, collecting taxes, most of it to Herod to Rome, which caused the fishermen to hate the tax collectors for it, and Jesus gave them a way out. You don't, you don't have to have that hate anymore. You can be free from it. You can have peace, and you can bring this to others. That hatred that the four of you have towards Levi doesn't have to be like that anymore. And Matthew, you don't have to live a life of fear anymore of how you travel and where you go and who you can eat with and who you can't. Like, these guys are your brothers now. 
So let's forget this whole system and let's come together and the love of God bringing them together. Now, why would Levi be willing to leave everything, get up and follow Jesus? There's no doubt that he heard about Jesus. Let's do a quick overview of how Levi may have heard about Jesus. After Jesus commanded the unclean spirit to leave the men in the synagogue, it says in Mark chapter 1, verse 28, that his fame spread everywhere throughout all of the surrounding region of Galilee. People from the region brought to Jesus all who were sick or oppressed by demons, verse 32 of chapter 1, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, verse 33. His disciples in Mark chapter 1, verse 37 said, everyone is looking for you. In verse 39, he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Verse 45, the leper who was healed went against Jesus' instructions. He went out and began to talk freely about it, spreading the news about Jesus so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Verse 45, when he returned to Capernaum, many were gathered together so that there was no more room even at the door. Mark chapter 2, verse 2. And all of those people saw the paralytic rise, pick up his bed, and go home. Verse 13 of chapter 2, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them, so that when we get to chapter 2, verse 14, do you think that Levi has heard about Jesus? Yes. Yes. Of course he did. And for someone who has been excluded from society, disliked, despised, hated to hear, follow me from a compassionate rabbi who has proven who he says he is, seems like a pretty good decision to make, doesn't it? See, Levi was ready. He had enough of that rejection. He had enough of those glares of hatred, of the bad mouthing that he received from everyone around him, leaving Capernaum, coming into Capernaum. Everyone was telling him to go away. Not accepted in synagogue, not accepted in people's homes, considered unclean, gifts were not accepted, his testimony not accepted, and here Jesus walks by and says, follow me. In other words, I accept you. All that other stuff, I get it. I get why people don't like you, I get why they hate you, but I receive you. And I want you to be a part of my life, I want to be a part of your life. Who here needs to hear that. Maybe you've been shunned by family members or by friends or just whatever situation you find yourself in or perhaps maybe you know somebody who's in this situation. Who around you needs acceptance, needs to be received to follow Jesus and by following Jesus, all of us stinky, fish-smelling people we get to hang around with one another, right? And he even makes it possible to live in peace with people who didn't get along before. Journeying through life together, knowing that we don't have it all together, but, but we follow Jesus who knows where we're going, and it's a really good place that he's bringing us to all together. Now let's take a look at what Jesus' disciples have in common here in verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Sorry, that's in chapter 1. I'm going back a little bit. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat 
mending the nets, and immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, that was the fisherman. Let's jump into Luke chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. It gives us a little bit more detail about Levi. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. You notice that all these disciples uh, left a lot. It cost them a lot to follow Jesus. They left what they knew. They left their job, their family, everything. There's always a cost to following Jesus. And I need to assure you that the joy and the grace of following Jesus far outweigh any costs. And I'm not making this up. I'm just speaking from my own personal experience as well as many people I've come to know that have made these sorts of sacrifices. Personally, I had a really great job in equity research for the third largest money manager in the United States. My family, who I'm very, very close to, is all in Southern California. My friends, everything familiar to me in Southern California. And I left it all to follow the call. And I don't tell you this to like toot my own horn or anything like that. I'm telling you this as living proof that God's word is true. That the joy and the grace of following Jesus far outweigh any cost. Verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, Levi was not a very clear choice, was he? But neither were Simon and Andrew, James, and John. You ever wonder if God is calling you to follow him? And I'm wanting to encourage you that he is. It's all by his grace that we are called to follow him. And you aren't here by accident. And this next verse here is a very important verse and it proves that food is needed to be part of Christian fellowship. Okay. Verse 16, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Here's an interesting thought. Maybe those farthest from God are those who already claim to know him. Perhaps what holds someone back from truly knowing God is that they choose to follow rules over following God. And so it seemed this way for the scribes and the Pharisees that following Jesus was more about merit and what they did more so than it was about faith. Did Jesus call scribes or Pharisees to be his first disciples? Is our goodness, our so-called goodness, keeping us from truly following Jesus. And if you feel there's no way God can accept you because you feel you are too bad, the things of your past are too bad, that's not God's heart. There Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, people the scribes and the Pharisees would never eat with. And Jesus' actions have been really inflammatory for these first two chapters. He touched a leper in chapter 1. He's accused of blasphemy by the scribes in chapter 2. And now this. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they were a pretty isolated group of people. 
They felt there was so much that could contaminate them and their religion that they kept a lot of people and a lot of practices at a really far distance. Jesus was someone who was definitely not that way. Jesus saw that he was to be with the people, and so here he is eating with sinners and tax collectors, and you notice it's plural. There's a bunch of them. And while multiple sinners and tax collectors gathered to eat with Jesus, here the scribes and the Pharisees were having a really difficult time believing that Jesus could possibly be a religious person because how could a religious person do what he's doing? Verse 17, And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, Just because Jesus ate with sinners does not mean he consented or approved or condoned their sin. He was there for them to lead them to repentance and to believe in the gospel. So let's not use this verse as an excuse to practice in our favorite sins of whatever they may be, gossip or gluttony or lying or idolatry, sexual immorality, whatever. Those are still sins. You know that a boat has to be in the water. That's what a boat is made for, right? A boat has to be in the water. But water in the boat, that's not a good thing. Right? That's not a good thing. Now, there's no purpose for a boat to be out of the water. It has to be in the water. Which is what the scribes and the Pharisees were like. It's what many churches are like. It's like a boat out of the water. It's not in the water. A boat is meant to be in the water, but water is not meant to be in the boat. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Jesus did not love the world or the things of the world, but he loved the people in this world. He was in this world doing the will of God. He entered in the water in his baptism. He entered in the tax collector's house, but it did not consume him. And we need to be in the world doing the will of God, but not in sin. We exist to nurture spiritual health, to open up our hospital, our church doors, to those who need healing. We're a church that welcomes the hurt, the helpless, the proud, the faithless, the self Centered, the jealous, the crippled, the broken, the abused, the imperfect. Because Jesus did not come to earth from heaven to build up a religious establishment. Actually, Jesus found the religious establishment to be really off putting. We see that Jesus constantly butted heads with the religious authority and he regularly debated, dialogued with the religious leaders about these man-made rules that they created and that they lived by. The religious establishment had acculturated the people with their man-made views on what was religiously acceptable and what wasn't. And we see this in how they viewed fasting and how they viewed Sabbath in these next several verses. But Jesus was not upholding the religious establishment's man-made old garments, as mentioned in verse 21. Their old garments were irrelevant. They were obsolete to the people. 
which has me wonder about the religious establishment of our own day and how much of it Jesus would find really off-putting. How much of it would he debate as to whether that was really of him or if that is just an old garment that we want people to wear. Sometimes we get so caught up in the religious actions of people. But the reasons we believe in the religious actions are theologically inaccurate. See, Jesus wasn't against fasting. He wasn't against the Sabbath, which is later in the chapter. He was against their theology regarding those spiritual disciplines. The way they practiced their religion lost its sight on the heart and the character of God. Now look at the question they asked from verse 16. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's not who God is. That's not God's heart. Look at verse 18. Now John's disciples and Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus exposed how the religious leaders of the day turned what God designed as a benefit, as a blessing, into a burden. And we read that John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting at this time, but Jesus' disciples were feasting. The Pharisees had this proprietary faith where they thought that they could earn a right standing with God by how they lived, by what they did, and by trusting in themselves, which is false. This is a false belief. We cannot earn a right standing with God by what we do. It's not what we do. It is what Jesus has already done that puts us in the right standing with God. It's not what we do. Jesus' atonement for our sins on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, that did it. We didn't do anything. And so this type of news, this really got the Pharisees upset because their whole life was dedicated to doing the right thing. And if someone confronts you about doing the right thing your entire life and what you truly believe is the right thing to do, and he says that it's wrong, you get a little ticked about that. Right, because you've dedicated your whole life to living this certain way, believing this certain thing. Your disciples do not fast. And it's puzzling because it's the right religious thing to do. They're commemorating something with the fasting that John the Baptist's disciples kind of commemorate this time of fasting too. Now listen to Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The spiritual disciplines weren't the issue that Jesus was dealing with here. This is not a fasting issue. 
It's that the Pharisees trusted in themselves, thinking they themselves can earn their way to God. So back to the Pharisees' question, your disciples do not fast. Verse 19 in Mark chapter 2, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. It simply was just not an appropriate time for them to fast. It was a time to celebrate. Sinners were being set free. Sinners and tax collectors were eating with Jesus. People who knew they couldn't earn a right standing with God ate with Jesus, who forgave people of their sin. And so maybe some at that time there, the religious were thinking, it just it can't be that simple. Here we are depriving ourselves of food while you guys are just eating. How confident can someone be about their own self-righteousness? And it simply doesn't work. What Jesus brings in a new life, a healed life, can't be contained in its old ways. 21 and 22. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. It just does not work. You can't keep your old ways. And Jesus is about grace. And by his grace are we righteous before God. We can't earn our way to God. It just doesn't work. Our best isn't good enough. And there's no reward for doing our best, which is a belief that many hold to. You can go out to the lake this afternoon, ask people if they're going to go to heaven, and the majority of them will say yes, that they will. And if you ask them why, they will respond with something like this. I'm a good person. I've done more good things than I've done bad things, and so I think I'm a good person, and so that's going to happen. Now, if what they say is true, then why do we need Jesus? Why bother? If our relationship with God is completely dependent on what we do, aren't we in a lot of trouble? We're in a lot of trouble. And if we don't recognize we're sick, that we're broken, that we have a need for a physician, he's the great physician. See, Jesus' death on the cross was complete. And it wasn't to get our relationship with God started and then for us to finish it. He said on the cross, it is finished. And he bore all of our sins. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. There may be people here who feel that their badness, that what they've done is so bad that they can't possibly be accepted by God. And I need to remind you that in the scriptures, there's no record of that. That someone was so bad that they couldn't be received. There's nothing so bad that Jesus didn't take with him on the cross. The badness isn't what keeps you from God. It's the goodness. Believing that we are so good 
that we have all the spiritual things figured out, that we can do it on our own. That false sense of goodness is what's really dangerous. Not our feeling of badness. You can repent of that. It's when you're feeling you're too good. Let's pray. Lord, we ask, God, that you would reflect upon us a giant mirror to just show us, God, where we've become old wineskins, Lord, where we've become old garments, that you would show us where we've fallen short. God, may we represent you well. May we not misrepresent you as the Pharisees and scribes did. May we be sensitive, Lord, to your calling, to seeing those who are ostracized, who are in need of a physician. May we reach out to them. May we have a heart and eyes to feel for them, to empathize with them, and to see them in Jesus' name. Amen.